This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Uh, the scripture this, uh, this morning is going to come from uh, Matthew, the second chapter, uh, Matthew 2. If you want to turn with me there in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 2, and we'll read the first 12 verses. So Matthew 2, verse 1. When you find it, would you stand? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will, sh- who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the, child, where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. <clears throat> and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we again thank you this morning. Lord, uh, what a message uh, before us, Lord. The record of the event of the coming of a Savior. Lord, ruler, king. Lord, we pray, um, don't let us miss the significance of these titles, the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Lordship of Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, the one of whom and to whom Uh, Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess His Lordship to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we thank You for opening our own hearts to the reality of salvation in Christ and bringing us into submission to the rule of Christ. 
And yet we recognize sin in our life on a daily basis, so we pray for continued grace. That we may live lives characterized by submission to our Lord and Savior, our King, our Ruler. So that in us, in our lives, in our conduct, His reign is manifest. the way that it should be for Your glory and honor. I pray, Lord, uh, enable me to deliver the message You would have spoken here and please enable all of us to hear open hearts ready to receive Your Word, ready to acknowledge and submit to Your will, May we be desirous to glorify You in all things. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. And be seated. Do you this morning... um, Seek a king, a savior, a lord, and I, I, I tr- emphasize the words king and, and ruler and lord there because so often we um, speak of seeking a savior or acknowledge, acknowledging uh, the fact that Christ is savior and uh, acknowledging some kind of need there of him and his work but often to the exclusion of these other aspects of the person of Christ. He indeed is Savior, with a capital S. <laughs> that is, there, there are none who save genuinely and ultimately except Jesus Christ. He is the Savior that came into the world. The Christ, as we spoke last week and we'll see again today. The long-awaited Messiah, the Anointed One. You can put capitals on both of those. Capital A, capital O. He's, he's the anointed one. Capital A, he's, because there were many anointed ones. The, the, the prophets were anointed. Uh, the kings of old were anointed. The priests were anointed. But he is the anointed one, the ultimate one. The ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. And he is, we could simply say, as the Scripture does, he is the one, capital O. <laughs> he's, he's the one. Christ. He's also ruler. Capital R. The ultimate. The ultimate ruler. The ultimate king. Capital K. I may be overdoing it here, but I'm just trying to make a point, okay? Uh, I I do like to do that when I'm writing out something or typing out something. It helps me, you know, I like to put capitals. I almost always, if I'm typing or writing... And I'm not laying this down as a law. I'm just saying this is a personal thing with me. I, I almost always, if I if I write a pronoun that refers to to Christ or you know to God, 
uh, I put a capital there. Me with a capital M, if it, I mean, if it's talking about Christ or God. You with a capital Y, if it's talking about God. H, uh, capital H for He, if it's talking about God. I, I like to do that because it helps me remember the supremacy of Christ. Just a small way of being confronted with His supremacy. So, ruler with a capital R. Lord with a capital L. In fact, that is emphasized in the Scripture with that phrase. King of kings, Lord of lords. So again, not just a king, not just a lord, but the ultimate. The ultimate. That's a good term for today, isn't it? We like to talk about things that are awesome. You know, awesome, do and And we like to talk about things that are ultimate. You know? He's the ultimate. The ultimate Lord, the ultimate ruler, the ultimate king. So it's important to not only see Him as Savior. In fact, I would say it's, it's crucial. It's essential to get those other aspects. I don't, I don't think there is any saving knowledge of Jesus Christ unless He is recognized as Lord, King. Ruler in an ultimate way, in a personal way. That is, he's king over my life. He's ruler over my life. He's Lord in my life as well as being Lord, period. The wise men here were seeking a king. I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing to note that they, especially being foreigners, would, would travel probably hundreds of miles to seek or seeking to honor a, a king who, for them, is foreign. At least that's, that's certainly uh, uh, implied here. Now, I know it says they, they, they came from the east, and if, and if you said, um, or if I said, you know what, we had a... We had a visitor last week from the east. I might be talking about Minden, or, uh, or I might be talking about um, the Carolinas or something. Or I might be talking about China. You don't know. And we don't know for sure uh, exactly where they came from, except that the fact that they are called Magi, translated wise men um, in the King James, the fact that they are called Magi um, suggests that they were uh, Parthenian or Persian um, because that, that uh, class of, or caste of individuals um, uh, dates back about six or seven hundred years before Christ and they, and they were wise men. Um, for example, you, you would read about them in, in the uh, book of Daniel and and in the Babylonian Empire, where they were prevalent, uh, they were used as consultants for the king. And Daniel, uh, because of the Spirit of God operating in Daniel, was placed over all of them. He was in charge of all the magi, all the wise men. He was sort of the ultimate you know, wise man in, in, as far as men, as far as mere men. And in the Persian Empire, they even had the uh, distinction of crowning 
kings. Uh, a, a, a king had to meet their uh, their specifications, you know, their approval, uh, because they were learned men. They were they were educated in in science, astrology, astronomy, and sometimes uh, as well. And this is why why the name uh, sometimes the occult. Uh, some of them were uh, pagan. Uh, most of them, you know, were, were pagan, uh, wise men. So probably these are coming from that area: Babylon, Babylon, Persia, to seek to honor. The king of the Jews. Now, we already mentioned that um, we have record of the Magi in the book of Daniel. So, they, they were no stranger to Jews and Jewish custom. Because during the captivity, you know, the Jews were taken away to Babylon. So, they would have been familiar with the Jewish religion, Jewish prophecies, Jewish customs. And they would have had some understanding of this Messiah to come, this anointed one, this king. Now, let's just do a quick bit of history to put it in context, and in addition to what we just did. Um, Matthew here starts out by saying, After Jesus, verse 1, was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. This, this is a point in time in history. An event happening in a geographical place. Should go without saying, but it's a point that needs to be made in our day because this is uh, fought against so so hard. I don't know how many um, television specials there have been, you know, uh, on, on places like the History Channel <laughs> or Discovery or whatever, in search of the historical Jesus. You know, let's let's find out who the real Jesus is and do away with the myths of the Bible. Jesus of Nazareth is the historical Jesus. And this is what this is Matthew's purpose in recording these events to to tell us when Jesus came, when Jesus was born, this was the arrival of the Messiah and it took place in space and time. In a geographical location in Bethlehem, Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judea. This is the the uh uh nickname the city of the uh king uh, the name means house of bread. That's interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus in John 6 says, I am the bread of life. I'm the living bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. But in that place, geographical place, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And Matthew tells us that it was during the reign of Herod the king. So it was at a particular point in time. This is history. These are facts, historical facts. Luke um, tells us it was during the time that Quirinius was governor in Syria and that Mary and Joseph came to Bethlehem because of a, of a census um, issued by Caesar. These are historical facts about a historical 
person, Jesus of Nazareth. This is the historical Jesus that we have record of in Scripture. And so wise men came from the east, the Magi that we just talked about, to Jerusalem, saying, verse 2, where is he who, was, who has been born king of the Jews? Now, they, they understand that this person that they're looking for is king of the Jews. Just, just an, uh, an infant at this time, or a toddler at this time, but he's been born to be, and is, in fact, king of the Jews. They, they have some understanding of this. That's why they come to honor him. For, verse 2, for we have seen... His star in the east, and have come to worship Him. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a ton of speculation, just like there is with the wise men. By the way, anybody tell me how many wise men there were? Hmm? Trick question, okay. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. The Scripture doesn't say. The Scripture does not tell us. I think traditionally, uh, three has kind of been accepted because <laughs> uh, it makes a good song. You know, we three kings. But, uh, no. No, probably because there are three gifts mentioned. And so, uh, whoever started this whole rumor just thought, well, you know, that a gift for each king. But we really don't know. could have been a large entourage. We, we don't know. It's plural. The term magi is plural, so there are at least two. Uh, maybe a lot more. These kings, magi, came from the east, and they said, we have seen his star. We're looking for the one born of the king of the Jews. We, what they're saying is, we know that he's here, we know that he's arrived because we have seen his star. Now, that's, that's interesting. But the Scripture just doesn't give us a lot of detail about what all that means. What do you mean His star? Well, they, they saw some manifestation that they understood to announce the arrival of the King of the Jews, and that's why they came. Now, they saw the star. Look at verse 2 again. They, they saw the star, not in the east. That is, the star wasn't in the east, or they would have gone the wrong way. They saw the star while they were in the east. So the star apparently was in the west, and they followed it to, or, or well, they came because of it to Jerusalem. It doesn't say that they followed it. It just says they saw it at that point, and so they headed for Jerusalem. They came from the east, so apparently the star was in the west. We saw his star in the east, meaning while we were in the east, and have come to worship him. Now, let me just say this real quick. Like I said, there's a lot of speculation about what the star is. Um, bottom line is we don't know. Um, we don't know. And I know I've seen videos and things where they've got it all figured out. And they go back to uh, these different dates, um, 4 B.C., 5 B.C., 6 B.C., and, and say, you know, here's the event in, in, you know, some Jupiter lined up with Saturn and this kind of thing. Or there was a cluster of stars visible at that moment and they thought it to be one star. They, they, they trace it back to all these different events and say, this is the star that they saw. I think that's highly unlikely. Um, because of the nature of the movement of this star. Now, again, it does not say they followed it to Jerusalem. It only says they saw it when they were in the east. And they came 
and ask, where is he? But then after that, they follow it to, they see it again and they follow it to Bethlehem. Now, it actually leads them to the very house where Jesus was. Now, to me, that rules out all those explanations about meteors and one planet lined up with another planet and constellations. That rules all that out because I look up at night and I see certain stars directly over my house. And if I were in Dallas, they might still look like they were directly over my head. I mean, they're pretty far up there. So, uh, in other words, they're not going to lead you to one house. This one does. So, I think it's probably some miraculous manifestation, possibly an angel, uh, that leads them to the very house where Christ is. At any event, they come. And here's the important thing. And I just want to break this down into two main points. Here's the important thing. They're on a mission, okay? They come seeking. They come seeking. Seeking the king. Not just, again, not just a king, but the king. And they're, they're even specific in their request. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They're talking about a specific king who, under, who uh, Herod understands to be the Christ. So he, he gets all his wise men together, the chief priests and the scribes in verse 4, and, and inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. He wants to know that the Magi come seeking the king. This is their mission. And I asked earlier, if you're seeking a king, um, that's what we're all created, designed to do. Seek the king. That raises a question, doesn't it? Does everybody do that? Well, I, I would answer that this way, and I'm going to... I want to read you a passage from Acts 17. Turn there if you want to. Um, I would answer that question this way. Everybody is seeking. Everybody is seeking. And I think there's a sense in which you might say everybody is seeking a king. That is, they're looking for some leadership, some uh, ruler, some authority over their life. Now, granted, oftentimes uh, that, that would just be the same individual. In other words, I'm looking for some authority over my life and, and that's going to be me. I'm the main authority figure. Uh, that, that's bottom line. That's where we're, where we're all at in, in the lost state. We are our own God. We are our own Lord. But isn't it interesting, though, uh, sometimes I, I look at uh, cults, for example, uh, religious groups, you know, that we know about or, or we see about in the news or something like that. Sometimes just some of the strangest, you know, ludicrous teachings. And you wonder why they have any followers at all, right? You look at something like David Koresh and you think, how did he get any followers? Or, or even some, um, some organizations that wear the name Christian, but they're so legalistic and you wonder, 
how anybody goes along with that. Or maybe the other way. They're so libertarian. I mean, they don't believe in anything. And yet, people show up to demonstrate some kind of worship of nothing and, and everything at the same time. I don't know. It's very strange. People are seeking something. We're, we're created. In fact, I would say it this way. We're created to worship. It's built in us. It's a part of us. And so, oftentimes, even if we try to deny that, it's going to manifest in some way. You, you can claim to be totally autonomous in the sense that you just say, you know what, nobody's going to govern me. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. But you will find yourself looking to some things, admiring something, and in that sense, worshiping in some respect. It is a, uh, an irony, yet a truth in our own day when the, the whole teaching of evolution has taken such a hold on our society. It itself, that system has become a religion. And it's a religion of atheists. Isn't that strange? And so it, it's a form of religious expression. They, they have found something to put their faith in, their hope in, their trust in, even if it's nothing. And chance is certainly nothing. Men are created to worship. Here's the passage in Acts 17. Paul here is speaking to a group of people in Athens on Mars Hill. You may be familiar with the story. Paul, uh, uh, on one of his missionary journeys, he winds up at Mars Hill. It was kind of the Oprah show of its day, you know, where, where um, people would gather to do a lot of talking but not make any decisions about anything. I mean, they just, they just let's hear the latest thing. And we can all kind of say, wow, that's, that's neat. That's, that's an interesting uh, truth. But, uh, but they don't have to commit to anything. You know, they, just, they just talk about everything. And, and they, in Athens, they've, they've erected all these different uh, memorials, uh, statues of, of, of worship, altars to all these different gods. And Paul walks in the midst of that and begins to preach the gospel. And here's what he says in verse 26. Speaking of the true God, the living God, he says in verse 26, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him though He is not far from each one of us. Take note of that. Paul's talking here to a group of pagans. Um, well, they didn't consider themselves pagans, but I mean, they're, they're very cultured, uh, educated people. But totally immersed in idolatry. And Paul is addressing them and he says, look, there, there is a, a, a real God and, and to, 
he uses their their altar to the unknown god uh, as an opportunity and says, "Look, I, you you worship this god in ignorance, and I'm going to tell you who he is. He's the god that created everything. He's the god that gives life and breath and all things to all people. He's the god that." made every nation from one blood. That's a, that's a whole message for another day. Um, races? No. God made us all from one blood. We've all got the same parents. Adam and Eve. i got three kids. They don't, they don't all look just alike. They have different traits. But they've got the same parents. And that's the case with all of mankind, all human beings. God made us from one blood. And He has determined pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. He's a pretty powerful, <coughs> powerful God. So that, now this, this is an amazing statement. Take, take note of this. Paul says, He's done this so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for Him and find Him. He has created us with that built into us. A, A longing to submit to someone, something. It's It's built into us. He, he put it there so that we would seek Him. And though we live in blindness, so that we would, we would grope for Him and find Him. Now, that's not what sinful men do. And women. You understand when I say men? I'm not man bashing. I'm talking about men and women. Okay? <laughs> I have to qualify that sometimes. That's, that's what He created mankind to do to seek for Him, grope for Him, and find Him. Because, in verse 28, in Him we live and move and have our being. He's our Creator. He's the One who made us. He's the One who sustains us. Every breath that we take is by the power of God. God's, God's working. God pumping our chest in and out. God making our heart pump. In Him we live and move and have our being. And He's the one, verse 31, that will finally judge the world. He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. That's talking about Jesus. And He has given us assurance of this. He's given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. You see what Paul is doing? He's saying, you're all, you're all created to seek God. And there's a lot of seeking going on because there, there were just all manner of altars out there to different gods and temples uh, around Athens to, to uh, you know, places of worship to different gods. There was a lot of seeking going on. So what Paul does is try to take that and direct it to the One. It matters what you seek. Seeking in itself doesn't accomplish a whole lot. 
So I, I hear people say, and with good intentions, you know, a lot of times you hear teaching on evangelism or whatever, and you it's said with good intentions. People say, you know what, everybody out there is seeking God, and we just need to help them get there. You know, well, I would say it this way: everybody out there is seeking. They're not seeking the God of the Bible. In fact, um, really what's happening is what Paul points out in Athens, what Paul also points out in Romans 1, really what they do when they are confronted with the truth is exchange it for a lie. So, so they're seeking, but part of that seeking is like Jonah when, when God told Jonah, you go to Nineveh and, and uh, Jonah got on a boat to Tarsus to flee the presence of the Lord. And that little statement is there, I don't know how many times in the first part of Jonah. To flee the presence of the Lord. And Jonah was seeking too. He was seeking to get to Tar- Tarsus and get away from God and what God told him to do. There's a lot of seeking going on, but it's not seeking God. It's seeking a God and it's seeking to avoid the true God. These wise men came seeking the King, the King of the Jews. They were seeking Jesus. We saw His star. They're they're very specific. Where was the King of the Jews born? For we saw His star in the east. And we have come, and again, this is very specific in the Greek, we have come to worship Him. We've come to worship Him. Now, let me say one more thing about this seeking before we move off of that. And and this, I think, kind of makes the point of what I was just saying. You look at the contrast between the Magi and Herod. At the news of the arrival of the king of the Jews, the the Magi, they, they go seeking after Him. You know, we want to go worship Him. Herod gets the same news. He gets it by their hands, not by the star, by their mouths. But Herod gets the same news, you know, the arrival of the king of the Jews. And he's seeking too, but he's seeking to kill whoever this king of the Jews is. You know why? One of, one of Herod's titles was king of the Jews. And for him to submit to the lordship of Christ would mean relinquishing his own authority. It's, it's, I mean, when you're talking ultimate, you know, the king, the king of the Jews, then it's, it's one or the other. I mean, there's not two the kings, okay? There's, there's only one. There's not two ultimate rulers. There can only be one. And Herod was appointed by the Roman government as king of the Jews. And he wanted to retain that. He wanted to keep that position. Submitting to the will of God, submitting to the Lordship of Christ, the kingship of Christ, would mean relinquishing His own authority, which He was not willing to do. In fact, He was willing to go to great lengths to keep it. And I don't have time to go there, but you read what Herod did and killing all the 
the male children under two years of age. And you will see an example of the depravity of man and the lengths that we will go to. And I say we because, again, we're all in the same boat as sinners. The lengths that we will go to to avoid submission to the true God and His Christ. Here's part two. They, first was mission. You know, they're seeking a king. They're, they're on mission. They're seeking a king. Part two is a mission accomplished. What do I mean by that? Well, they were seeking with purpose. Look at verse two again. First of all, after Jesus was, I'm sorry, verse two, saying they they were saying. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So, uh, this is not just out of curiosity um, like the, uh, the audience at Mars Hill. Or, you know, the audience on many of our talk shows today. Not just the audience in the studio, but the audience at home too. You know, we watch them so we can hear what the latest thing is. You know, like the people in Athens, but no commitment. But they're committed. They've got purpose. We are seeking Him with the purpose of worshiping Him. Now, let me just say this about the Magi. I don't know. Now, we don't know what all they understood about the person and, uh, you could say, the ministry of Jesus Christ. In other words, they, they knew about the King of the Jews, right? So they had some understanding of the Messiah, the King of the Jews, who would come. I, I, I think it would probably be a stretch to say that they understood that this was deity, God-man. This child is God in the flesh. Probably a stretch to say that because uh, uh, even the Jews that followed Jesus, the twelve, for example, and, and others who followed Him, it took a while for them to get you know, that concept in their head. Uh, so they probably didn't understand that. So probably the idea of worship here has to do more with just honor Him. But... You know, as people would come, like for example, the Queen of Sheba came and honored uh, Solomon in the Old Testament. That was customary. Uh, uh, but having said that, the term here, though, is is the term that is often used. Um, in fact, the way that it's structured here is the way that it's often used regarding true worship of the true God. And the picture in this, in this word, worship, proskuneo, the picture is like to fall down on your face before Him. And so, regardless of what you know, they understood intellectually, here, here's the picture for us. This is the Christ, the One, capital O. That's, what, that's the term that Michael uses. That's where I'm getting that from, Micah chapter 5. The one, the ruler, the king, 
And their coming and their worship demonstrated submission. They understood Him to be the King of the Jews. So they were intentionally honoring and submitting to Him as King. That was their purpose. Now, let me go back just a minute to this concept we've already talked about and we'll, we'll close. This, this too is, is built into us. I mean, this is the reason we seek because worship is something God has built into us. And like we saw earlier, C.S. Lewis got a handle on this in that he realized Worship comes natural for us. Now, hold on just a minute. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not saying that true worship of the true God comes natural for sinners. It doesn't. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying worship in general. Think about it for a moment. There, there is, is not a culture known to man throughout history. If you, if you come across one in your history books or whatever, please let me know. I mean that seriously. I don't, I, there's not one far as I know, known to man throughout recorded history that did not have some form of worship. And that's because God has built that into us. So, it may have been totally uh, in error, you know, the, the way that it manifested, the way they directed it. I mean, they might have been like the children of uh, Israel. They might have worshipped a golden calf. Or like the, uh, the island, uh, natives during World War II who began to, uh, uh, the cargo worship. You know, the, the, the military would come in, plane loads of cargo, setting up places in the, uh, in the Pacific, and these, uh, natives there, uh, thought this was visitation from the gods. And they began to collect things like cigarette lighters and those kind of things, and, and, and they used them as instruments of worship, and they built replicas of airplanes, and worship them. I mean, this is just as recent as the 1940s. Because that's built into us. Everybody worships. And C.S. Lewis, uh, who was previously an atheist and despised the idea of worship, a praise of God, he thought it was foolishness, but God opened his eyes to the fact that worship is just an expression of delight in something. And everybody does it. I, I looked on uh, Facebook last night, and there were tons of worshipers on there. And they were mourning the loss of the LSU game. And there were tons, <laughs> there were, there were tons of them. I, I watched because there were some uh, storms coming in, and so I had it on Channel 12 website for a moment. I'm, I put it on there to watch the, new, the, uh, the weather report. And these guys are getting slammed. Uh, because it was a live thing, a live chat thing. And these, I didn't know, understand what they were talking about at first, but these guys were getting slammed for breaking in during the LSU game. <laughs> and, and they took it graciously, but, uh, uh <laughs> there's tons of worshipers out there. Everybody, everybody does it. Whether it's football, golf, whether it's, uh, as C.S. Lewis said, your lover, in other words, your wife, your children. I hear people praising all the time. We, we all do it. We all do it. So, uh, C.S. Lewis again says it this way, 
He had missed this originally. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do. He's saying that praise in reality is something we delight to do. What indeed, he says, we can't help doing. You hear what he's saying? Praise is something we can't even help doing. And that's, that's why he says uh, in the statement just, just prior to that, let me go back to this section for a moment. He says, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. In other words, what you enjoy, you praise. And he says, I'd never noticed that. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Now, he says, what I was doing was denying that in spiritual matters. Denying us the right to do that concerning that which is supremely valuable, God. I think, C.S. Lewis concludes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Don't miss that. He's saying, the praise itself is not just an expression of joy. I, I praise the lottery, not just because you know, I take joy in it, and this is an expression of it, because it completes the joy. People love talking about that which they enjoy whether it's the lottery or some sport or some relationship, some false religion or true religion, true God. And C.S. Lewis says it's, it's not merely an expression of the joy we have in that thing that we praise. It completes the enjoyment. It is, it's appointed consummation. Final thought, again, from Jonathan Edwards. God is glorified not only by His glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. So, so we acknowledge that Jesus is Savior? Good. We acknowledge He's King of the Jews, the Anointed One, the Messiah? Good. We acknowledge that He's Lord, that He's King of kings. Good. Or we could put it in the words of James. We acknowledge that there's one God. Good. He says even demons do that. You know what demons don't do? Enjoy that truth. Or let's say it this way. You know what they don't do? They don't enjoy Jesus. They don't praise Him. They acknowledge the truth about who He is. So even when He was in the flesh, and He would 
they would, he would confront them and be walking towards them and sometimes they would cry out, You are the Holy One of God! It's a true statement, isn't it? And they saw that. In a sense, they saw His glory. Now, Edward says, God is glorified not only by His glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. You, do, you, you believe there's one God? You do well. Even demons believe and tremble. Well, what's the difference in a true believer and a demon? They do not rejoice in the truth about the one true God. They do not enjoy Him. They are not submitted to Him. I mean, what I mean by that is willful submission. Oh, it's true. They, if He says do something, they have to do it. I mean, they're submitted in that thing. He's, he's got ultimate authority. When He spoke, come out of Him, they had to come out. But it wasn't because they desired to do His will. They took no enjoyment in doing His will. So there was, in the act of obeying His Word, there was no worship. There was no praise. Because there was no enjoyment. But, Edward said, when those who see it, that is, see His glory, when those who see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. That's, that's worship. To see Him and delight in Him. To willfully submit to Him as Lord and King, ruler, as Micah says, and as Matthew quotes here in verse 6. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it and his delight in it. He's saying, you don't, it's not enough to just see it, embrace it, and enjoy it. Delight in it. That's the heart of true worship. The old confessions, and boy, we think of, and I'm, I'm winding down here, don't worry. We, we think of, we can, I'm not saying that everybody here does, but we can, if we're not careful, think of theology as being so dry. Sometimes you talk about, talk to people about, you know, theology or study of theology. Oh man, that's, you know, for people in ivory towers, that's dry stuff. The old, uh, uh, catechism, the, the Westminster Confession um, from the uh, uh, 17th century. And, and this article that I'm about to quote has, has been used in a lot of other confessions since then. But the, the very first question, and, and, and the, uh, you know, the, the uh, catechisms were used to train children and new believers and everybody else wanted to learn. But the very first question, and this is relevant to what we're talking about here, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is our main purpose for being? 
And the answer is this. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what those old dry theologians saw as the main purpose for human beings. The chief end. What's the chief end of man? And notice it's end singular. What's the chief end? Not ends plural. So the answer is not talking about two different things. It's talking about one thing. The answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. One thing. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's worship. Everybody's seeking. But it matters what you seek or more uh, accurately who you seek. And, and the mission is only accomplished. And this is why there's so many empty people out there. The mission is only accomplished if your seeking winds up at the feet of Jesus. If, if it takes you to where He is. Mission accomplished. They, they found the one they were seeking and they worshipped Him. Would you, st- would you stand? May the Lord bless the preaching and hearing of His Word. To Him be glory forever. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you. Give you peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're dismissed. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80. Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.